1: I've got the immense pleasure of a great special guest and a bit of a hero of my, of me, Rand Fishkin is our guest on the show today. Um, Rand, would you like to give the um, audience a quick bio if they don't know who you are?
2: Sure, yeah, no problem. Uh, so I... Started a company called Moz, originally SEO Moz, as a consulting business, and then I transitioned it into a software company back in 2007 and raised some venture funding, uh, grew the company over the next seven years as CEO, and then uh, stepped down a few years ago and was with uh, Moz until just about February, actually, so so a couple months ago, uh, I left as of when I left, Moz was about a $47 million a year business uh, with about 160 employees and 35,000 customers. So it, it grew quite rapidly, uh, raised a number of more rounds of, of venture, uh, and you know, has been uh, a, big, a big, impactful company in the SEO space, certainly. Uh, and now I've left, I'm doing a new company called uh, SparkToro. And that, uh, that company is specifically focused on trying to help marketers uncover where their audiences hang out and to whom they pay attention and what publications and events and podcasts and, and video channels are engaging to them. Uh, and I hope to have a product in probably six to nine
1: months. Well, We look forward to it, Rob. Uh, um... So, John, um, I've got my co-host for this episode. Kim couldn't join us today, but John is filling in. Um, Can you tell us a bit about you, John?
0: Yeah, I'll make it really brief. My name's John Locke. My business is Lockdown Design, and we do SEO for manufacturers and uh, industrial companies.
1: That's great. And I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We're a WordPress focused maintenance and support company with a specialization in membership and learning management systems. Before we um, delve into um, our great special guest and um, um, delve into his unique uh, outlook, um, I just want to quickly mention our major sponsor, which is Kinsta Hosting. The WP Tonic website is hosted by Kinsta. They are a specialized WordPress-only hosting provider, big enough to have all the bells and whistles, staging site, fantastic support, but small enough to still really care. And I have, the, like I say, the WP Tonic website hosted, plus a number of my client websites hosted with them. They are just fantastic and we're really delighted that they're our long-term sponsor and they've been extremely supportive and they're just generally really nice people. So go to the WP Tonic website. There will be um, links here. They are affiliate links. So if you use those for yourself or for your clients, you'll be supporting the show and that would be great. And just give them a Twitter and tell them that you heard about them on the WP Tonic website, they'd be—they just love you for doing that, and so would we. Right, Rand. Um, so you wrote your book. Um, why did you write it, and can you just give a quick outline on some of the key things in the book that you covered? Only a small question, Rand.
2: Small question, yeah, easy to answer, no
1: problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm notorious for these questions, Rand. Uh, yeah, big, big, broad ones that are
2: challenging. So. Um, I think that my book mostly came from a desire to share openly a lot of things that over the last, particularly over the last six years, I have not shared as openly as I traditionally did in the 10 years prior. Mm -hmm. So folks who maybe followed me on my blog, you know, through 2005 to, to 2014, 2015, um, would say, wow, Rand is super transparent about all these difficult situations and um, really walks through what it's like to go through whatever it is, uh, you know, transitioning from a services business to a consulting business or um, having a failed fundraising round or a number of other posts that, that I wrote that did very well and, and went viral. Um, but over the last few years, I haven't haven't been able to do that. And so Lost and Founder was kind of an attempt to make up for that lack of transparency, some of those missing stories, and also to try and put uh, all of the experiences over the last 17 years of, of kind of what it's like to build this, you know, company that, that does a lot of revenue and that's grown quite fast at times and then struggled at times, uh, to give that some context and a narrative, and then to extract a bunch of lessons from it. So it's hard for me to give you an outline because Lost and Founder, unlike a lot of business books, which are you know sort of single topic focused, right? They they sort of make a point right in the beginning, and then the rest of the chapters are spent reinforcing that point and telling stories about how to apply that particular point. And so those books do very very well. I think that they resonate well. They're made for good marketing. Uh, Lost and Founder is not like that at all. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, a complicated uh, series of stories that I think will will certainly resonate with folks so that for the early readers, um, I've gotten some lovely feedback, but uh, it is extremely hard to sum up. There, It's more like, you know, 19 different uh, extractable lessons from each of these time periods. So if you want, we can go through a few of those.
1: Yeah, um, give, give us a couple that you've, um, I'm looking for the right word here. Um, that you feel that's in your consciousness at the present moment. That's a good way to put it. Sure. Yeah. Sure.
2: So, I mean, I'm starting a new company. Uh, and one of, the, one of the chapters that I wrote was about pivoting, which, which pivoting is like this sacrosanct holy grail uh, that all startups are entitled to, right? You, you raise a bunch of money and, you know, you're going really hard at this one problem but if you discover that it's not working, you can just pivot to a whole different problem. Uh, you can go from being, what was it, Odeo to Twitter um, uh, and, and a number of other you know, famous companies that have, that have transitioned in that way. Uh, but I am extremely skeptical of, of the pivot. The, what pivoting means is we just poured many months or years and... Hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars into this particular direction, this problem that we thought we were going to solve, and now having learned a lot about that problem space, we've decided it is no longer good, and so we are starting from scratch with less money and no particularly strong experience in this totally new area. Um, and I think that's actually a very avoidable problem to get um, to get around, and so. For example, one of the things that, uh, that I'm doing at SparkToro is we have not started building any product yet. I'm still spending a lot of time uh, each day on the, on phone calls and over email and over video chat uh, with a bunch of people in the marketing field who are doing the kinds of work that I hope my product will solve. I want to make sure, 100% sure, that it's actually a problem they have, that it really is painful enough, uh, that they're experiencing it in quite in exactly the way I think that they are uh, so that when we build something, I know, Hey, I've had 200 conversations. I know that there's a ton more people like the 200 people I talked to that can make me feel more confident uh, in, in what we're building and hopefully avoid having to pivot at least a big pivot. I think little ones are fine. Yeah. So that's a, that, that's a big lesson I talk about. Um, in Lost and Founder, another one that's that's heavy on my mind is um, this is this comes from I think it's the last chapter or the second to last chapter. Uh, just the power of focus of being able to say we do this one thing and we do it extraordinarily well and much better than anyone else in the field, as opposed to saying, "Well, our company does a lot of things." We're not particularly great at any of them, but we're a great uh, we're an all in one solution, and it's hard to find all these other all these things in one place. And it turns out that is not very popular these days. Uh, for some reason, people are much happier going to point solutions. Zoom is a great example, right? You probably have Google Suite, right? Uh, or, or you know you've got your Gmail and your Google Drive and all that kind of stuff, and yet. Here we are using Zoom instead of Google Hangouts, why? Because this one point solution is better. It's a a higher quality product. It does the job better than Hangouts does. Uh, We probably all have Microsoft Office, and I bet most of us use Excel, but then we probably use Google Docs for a bunch of other things, and gosh, why why are we paying for that? But we probably don't use Google Docs when we make presentations because PowerPoint is still a better solution. So I, I think that the days of all-in-one software are fading out in favor of, I'm happy to learn a new interface and pay more money to get exactly the right thing. Um, and that's, I think that that's part of the power that comes from focusing your efforts and being best in the world as opposed to trying to be everything to everyone.
1: I follow you on that completely. I just feel just that last point, it, it's a very confused area at the present moment because I agree with you. There is a trend, and obviously you're an extremely logical person, so um, I see where you're coming from. But there's also if I you see, ask
2: my board
1: of directors, they disagree with you. But you know, <laughs> no, because a lot of things. There's uh, you know the one thing I've learned in um, becoming old age pensioner is uh, uh, there are most things are grey. There are some yeah. things that are definitely black and white but a lot of things are great. But there's some products I know that have been developed and they've thrown a British um, phrase, they've thrown the kitchen sink. You know, they've got so many different features. It's unbelievable. And they're adding even more features. Um, And then there's other products, like you say, that just do one thing and they try and be best at it. Um, John, have you got a question? Yeah, so my question is, this is something that
0: we've... Seen a lot become a debate in our own space in WordPress right now. There's this kind of like um, hosting companies are kind of like doing battle for, yeah. but one thing that I found very interesting is a selling point has become we're bootstrapped versus here's this evil company over here that's like taking VC money. This is like an actual thing that that is, I've seen two companies like use this in the last couple of weeks. What are your thoughts on this? Is there still room for bootstrap companies? Uh, and and how does that look different from a VC company?
2: So I think what's really interesting to me is um, a VC backed company will often frame themselves as the challenger to the big companies, right? The the big public companies or or the large private companies that own an industry. And they'll say, well, we'll, we're more nimble, right? And uh, we have the advantage of being able to sort of pour capital into solving this problem better and re- reimagining the problem space and coming up with a better solution. And I think that analogy works flawlessly for bootstrapped companies against venture-backed companies. And and I think what's even what's even more exciting for a bootstrapped company is they don't have the requirements, the binary exit requirements that a venture-backed company does. Right? So a venture back company, your job once you raise venture capital is to return you know, minimum three, hopefully more like five to 10x, the investor's capital, um, and hopefully you're going to raise more money from them and then re- make an even bigger return on that because they need to take you know, a $500 million fund and turn that into you know, a billion dollars, a billion and a half dollars over the next seven to 10 years. And the only way to do that and beat the market is with companies that are going to have extraordinary performance. So they're going to invest in, you know, let's say 30 companies in the portfolio, 24 of those companies hopefully will die or fail completely. Two or three of those companies will do pretty well. Uh, And then two or three will return the fund entire right? And, and that's that's sort of the model. I might be fudging the math a little bit. But as a result, venture-backed companies are encouraged to spend fast, to get growth fast, and to be very aggressive in the types of growth that they pursue. Whereas a bootstrap company can say, hang on, I think we're going to do a million dollars in revenue this year, and there's only the three of us. We're rich. We're doing amazing." Like, like, Let's, let's keep this up, let's keep going, let's keep making customers happy and, 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 and let's keep uh, doing what we're doing. And if next year we make 1.2 million, we're thrilled. And if the year after that, we're like up to one and a half or 1.75 and our product's still doing well and our you know, two other employees are happy and, our, uh, uh, and we're beloved in our space, awesome. And I think that power is very underrated the power not to have to go extremely fast, uh, not to have to burn out sort of your team and your employees to try and get this, this crazy performance um, and, not, and not to have to risk sort of company death all the time, especially in the early stages. I mean, Moz didn't have to do a ton of that, but certainly in the early days, we took a huge risk, right, burned almost all our cash To build the original LinkScape, right—the the the engine that powered OpenSide Explorer, which for many years was sort of the leader in its field, um, and now has given up a lot of ground, but uh, is about to get it back. I think Uh, the you know that that risk from I remember those days from like November of 2007 to October of 2008. We burned from I think we had 1.2 million dollars in the bank, and we went down to like 200 thousand dollars in the bank you know, in a year. So we were just right on the edge, right really <laughs> on the edge, and then we launched the product, and it, it did really, really well. It grew us fast, and we, were, we went from burning cash to making cash, and we were profitable for I think the next you know six years after that. So it was kind of a um, high-risk model. It might not have worked out, and if it didn't, we would have been dead within a few months.
1: Wow, well, it's fantastic. Um- so obviously you've left Moss. You know, I know. No, obviously you weren't the active CEO. But I, I'm thinking of any other individual that is so linked to their company's brand as much as you. Sure, yeah. um, you're kind of iconic individual in the SEO industry, and your linkage of your personal brand to your company was extremely tight. So you you decided to leave Moss. Um, That must have been, well, I'm presuming, you know, you could say actually it was a very easy decision, but I'd imagine that it was extremely difficult and painful decision. How long did it take you to decide that it had to be done?
2: Mm, Gosh, that's a... That's a tough question. The the circumstances are, so let me first be clear. I I left pseudo voluntarily. Mm. So um, I would say, uh, yes, it was my decision to leave, but also uh, I think it was the leadership of the company's decision that that was a good decision that I should be making. So uh, it's sort of right in the middle of, you know, we don't want you here anymore and you are choosing to go. It's not either of those extremes, it's somewhere in the middle, a little bit messy. Um, That being said, I think that the the circumstances that led up to it uh, were Gosh, it was sort of following the layoffs uh, that Moz did in, in 2016. I had a lot of um, professional conflict and then that led to personal conflict, um, which led to a lot more <laughs> professional conflict and sort of broken relationships. And then that was sort of the trigger for, okay, I think it's time that you, that you left. And um, very thankfully, uh, certainly for, for my wife and I, our, uh, one of our investors, Foundry Group, um, stepped in and sort of said, like, hey, we, we think it would be not great if Rand were to leave the business right now. We'd like him to stick around for a year. As, as you pointed out, right, his personal brand is very tied to Moz and it's sort of a, a, a tentative time for the company. Um, so, you know, let's let's keep him around for a year and, and, and ask him to work on this particular project, this, this project I mentioned around Links uh, that's coming out soon. And, uh, and so I, I agreed to do that. I was sort of happy to make that commitment, but uh, yeah, it's not, it's not the most fun thing in the world being at a company for, you know, a year when you sort of know leadership doesn't really want you there. Um, It it was okay. I I love the team I was working with. Um, I still, I still love, you know, an overwhelming majority of the, of the people at Moz and I'm cheering for their success, but yeah, it was, I don't know if it was a hard decision but it was
1: definitely a hard process. Thank you for being so frank about it. I'm going to go for our break, break, folks. We'll be back. I've got one of my, I can't believe that. He's like one of my heroes, uh, a, a really class act. of uh, um Rand Fishkin, we'll be back in a few moments, folks.
0: They stand behind their work with
2: full, no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast.
1: Yep, we're coming back. We've had a fantastic discussion. Um, Yeah, well, I do see you as a class act, actually, Rand. You've always always thought you'd done things your own way. i thought you know actually your letter that you wrote um which you made public i I thought that was typical of your style really it was um a a really great way to leave in a way um yeah and it must have been different you must have taken a while to write that you know i've had to do
2: (laughs) you're gonna be you're gonna be shocked I, i was actually shocked i uh I had a very, very busy week and I realized I needed to you know, write this post that my, my last day was sort of coming up. And so uh, that, you know, late that night before I went to sleep for my last day, I, I probably only spent, gosh, maybe two hours writing that post. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just something that had been sitting in my head for so long. I think it was really easy to just put it out there um, oh. or comparatively easy. I spent a lot more time. Drawing up all my charts and graphs for that jump shot post, I did the next week with all the data. So,
1: yeah. Um, before I, I ask John to come in with another question, I just got one. How, I think conflict in a company is good. I think yeah, I, I, I think passionate discussion on board level or um, having different views. And um, like I said to you, and joining this conversation. You know, there's a lot of grey out there. There is no finite answer, um, with a lot of business problems and um in general. So a good passionate discussion and a lot of people shy away from that. But also how do you keep it so it doesn't be also become toxic as well? Got any insights about that?
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think um I talked a little bit about this in Lost and Founder around values and, and getting people on the team who share sort of values and belief in you know, who should we hire and, and what kinds of people are right here, what behaviors would we dismiss people for. Um, I think certainly when you assemble that team and they share those beliefs and those values, that helps a tremendous amount. And I think it also helps to share uh, the big picture strategic vision right? Because the, disagreeing on the tactics or how you get there is, uh, becomes much more tenable when you all agree, look, we want to go there, right? That is the direction that we're going, and, that's, and this is how we re- we're going to get there. You think this is going to work the best to get us in the air, and I think this is going to work the best, and so we're going to try your thing, or we're going to try my thing. You know, the CEO is going to make a call about whose thing is going to be tried, but, but there's no hard feelings. If it doesn't work out, we'll try the other person's way. Right? And so I think, I think that is um, fundamentally, that's, that's sort of at the core of how you have those robust discussions with healthy disagreement um, and then come to good conclusions. I will say one more thing, which is I think that everyone in the room needs to feel uh, psychologically safe. Like you know, if 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 John and Jonathan and 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 I are, if we're all having a discussion about, um, hey, maybe we should uh, change the format of of this show, right? Like we think the WP Tonic show should be maybe in a different format. But if I feel like I could share what's going on in my personal life, and you guys wouldn't judge me, and it would make you like me and accept me more. And you would say, Rand, that sounds hard. Why don't, why don't you come over here? Look, like, let me give you a virtual hug. I, I am behind you 100%. Oh,
1: you get no, um, you, no hugs from an English guy like me, right? I'm but, just,
2: but, but I'm saying, right, like that, that type of, of relationship between us would mean that when we disagree about professional things, it's fine. Yeah. Right? There's no hard feelings. There's no... There's no animosity. There's only you know, sort of a a personal and professional love between us that gets over all of those disagreements, which are just tactical and and logical disagreements, and you think we should try this thing, and I think we should try that thing. And we can be passionate about our beliefs, but we need that to be able to be vulnerable with each other um, or to feel like we could be vulnerable Mm -hmm. and we would not be judged by the others for it. Uh, yeah,
1: and, I think uh, I I get some sense what you're meaning because yeah. if you can't be honest without it being used as a weapon later on Exactly. You're not going to get any honesty so but it's finding that um balance where um I think also where it's uh, where, where it starts becoming personal attacks at board level, right, or, right. At high, you know, where people say, you know, you're just not a really nice person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, right. you use stronger language than that, whatever. Uh, um,
2: well, and if, uh, you know, if you get into a situation where you say, hey, uh, look, John, I need to, I need to pull you. Th- I, think, I think Jonathan is actually acting only in his personal best interests and he's doing this for political reasons. And we should be careful about how we treat him, right? And you get that all the time on teams, right? You get that sort of like, I don't, I don't trust that person. I don't think they have the best intentions. Um, I, th- I think their motivation is suspect. And that, that is when you have a breakdown of the system, right? That's when you have to let
1: somebody go. And it could also work on the other way where fr- when people are too close to you, sometimes they just, because of, you personal loyalty and the closeness of the relationship they can't be totally honest with you Mm, interesting interesting you know um well john um got got your next question john
0: yeah i sure do i love what you said about um being able to be vulnerable because I, i i i'm and i'll just agree before i ask my question but definitely um you know people can't contribute like fully, unless they feel like you know what they're saying is going to be heard and actually listened to. So, totally agreeance. Uh, one thing that I saw that you were writing about very recently uh, was changing, uh, not just targeting uh, like search as as we're looking at keywords, but it's it's more about creating a brand that's synonymous with those search words mm. uh, and I really do feel like SEO is going that direction. I'd love to hear like more of your thoughts about uh, creating, you know, a demand for a brand uh, and associating like words with a brand instead of just being the top for a certain set of words together. Totally.
2: Yeah. So I think this is, this is actually a direction that Google has been pursuing and it's benefited brands that are synonymous with their topic or with their area of interest quite a bit. And it's also meant that for brands who aren't that, they're sort of left with this choice. Do I pursue very classic SEO where I go after non-branded keywords and try and build links and content to rank in there? Or can I try and create demand for my brand and associate my brand with the topic so that people are not searching for you know, whatever it is, um, um, rehab center on Google. They're searching for you know the name of our rehab center on Google, and if a lot of people start to do that, Google will actually push you up in the rankings for the unbranded keyword terms. And that that I think what's really interesting is that is not a skill. That brand building and sort of attention and awareness building that is not a skill that SEOs classically have had to develop. That's not been a strength of ours, right? We've left that up to, to sort of a whole different class of marketers and advertisers. And so the fact that we now have to invest in that and get good at that, um, I, I think that presents some challenges. And I've seen a bunch of pushback in the field, too, of people saying, like, no, 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 I do your website audit, I give you the keyword research, right, and I do technical SEO, and then I show you where you need, get, where you have gaps in links, and and then you try and rank for these keywords. That's the job of an SEO. This whole I'm gonna get people to search for your brand name, that's not that's not me. So I think I think that's gonna be a, a hurdle for us to
0: overcome. Some of us anyway.
1: Oh I have a question, John?
0: yeah sure thing so um you know here's a question when sparktoro seems in in though i know you're not building a product yet uh, right now to me it seems like almost like positioned uh around influencer marketing and we see an awful lot of that in our space yeah in fact a lot of the products like receive boosts because um there is like a lot of, you know, influencer marketing, affiliate marketing. People do like podcasters, like, you know, uh, and sponsor different things. You know, what do you feel are the keys to success, uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, getting people to, you know, vouch for a product or, you know, something that you're trying to sell?
2: Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, I think authenticity is probably mentioned the most and I agree with that because it is absolutely huge I think it's easy to tell when someone is promoting a product because they've been paid or sponsored to do so and and that's a very different kind of endorsement um you know if I see LeBron James in an advertisement for Sprite I don't think I bet that guy really likes Sprite and he probably you know that that's authentic but if I see him in a place where he has no idea that he's being filmed and it and he goes to a fridge and there's a bunch of different drinks in there and he actually grabs a sprite and drinks it in private all right that's that's new information to me right that's that's sort of authentic and there are people and brands um, and publications that are known for their authenticity and ones that whose credibility is suspect Um, and i think that a lot of Like, for example, a lot of what's called influencer marketing right now actually just means let's go find a person on YouTube with a large following or a person on Instagram with a large following and we're going to pay them uh, a bunch of money and send them our product and they are going to put up a post or a video about it. Um, I know that technically for some brands that is working. I don't think it will work for long. Uh, I think that that particular tactic is going to follow Andrew Chen's classic uh, law of shitty click-through rates and, um, and eventually become much less powerful. Uh, it, instead, I think that seeking out uh, people who authentically already like a product and then amplifying them, uh, creating products that people, especially influential people, will naturally love and gravitate toward and then making it easy for them to access it or being in the right places at the right times where they are. I think that's another great way to go. Um, And I think in the, in the field of influencer marketing, unfortunately somehow publications, which have a tremendous amount of sway have lost um, focus, not, not the publications themselves, but, but the field of influencer marketing has lost focus on publications that could really move the needle. And so sort of, the world of the blogosphere and of traditional media and of sort of the um, the world of new media that have a presence online. I I don't know why that's not classified as, as influencer marketing, but it absolutely should be. And I think that those folks, because of their you know their editorial decisions and the trust that they've built up with their audiences over time, have you know much more sway than a lot of people perceive. And so I think uh, I think very frankly. Influencer marketing should be a little bit more like link building. That, I know that sounds weird, right? But, but modern link building is totally, you know, it's identifying right people who reach right audiences and right websites that can provide links and, and hopefully get you traffic and also help your Google rankings. And then doing outreach to those folks that's going to have an impact, that sounds a lot like what influencer marketing should be.
1: That's great. Um- there seems to be a lot of bad news recently about the internet and internet companies, you know, from the Facebook um, incident um, to the very unfortunate killings at the YouTube um, to um, certain statements made by uh, a certain president about Amazon. Um, There seems to be a lot of uh, uh, interesting stuff going on. Um, do you think there's any, any linkage to all these separate incidents? Is there it, is it, And you got any kind of thoughts about why that's happening?
2: Sure. Yeah, so um, I'm going to say yes-ish. Uh, I think there's a thread that you can run, or several threads you can run between these various topics, but um, a, a lot of it has to do with the dramatic polarization of... Uh, political thought and political support in the United States, but I, but I think also uh, somewhat in in Europe and other countries, right? There's kind of a like, um, what do I want to call it? I'm going to say like a, a world of white nationalism that's spread across multiple countries. And I think obviously, you know, Donald Trump is the beneficiary of, of that here in the United States. Um, and there have been, you know, some uh, uh, leaders in Europe who, who are as well. And then on the flip side of that, you see people who are uh, very angry and very upset about this. And Facebook, I think Facebook if, uh, uh, happens to be a very convenient target for both sides of that, mm-hmm. right? Because rather than saying, well, I guess we did kind of conspire with a foreign government to, you know, uh, illegally rig a presidency, they can say, but Facebook enabled us to do that, right? And and on the other side of the aisle, you can sort of point and say, yeah, Facebook enabled that. And so everyone can get mad at Facebook, and they can be a common enemy for a time. Um, so I think there's there's some of that. And that's not to say that I mean Facebook's business model is essentially exactly what people are complaining about. They 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 think they're complaining about. Hey, Facebook allowed whatever Cambridge Analytica to use third party data to get all this information. And, um, and maybe it was, you know, on behalf of some, some foreign government, which, you know, which has its own problems. But I think the real issue is that's what Facebook is. Facebook is, it's free. It makes all these things fun and easy. It's, you know, sucks up your time all day. And in exchange, you're the product and Facebook sells you to advertisers and third parties and political parties. And, candidates. And if you're not comfortable with that, you should not be in on to, on Facebook. But I think that, very frankly, people don't care that much about privacy. They, they just don't. People, especially in the United States, Europe a little bit more, but, but people in the U.S. do not care about privacy. Um, they are happy to trade privacy in exchange for, you know, some of these free internet services and
1: well, it's all about boundaries, isn't it? I put a lot of stuff on Facebook, but there's some stuff that you will never find on Facebook uh, yeah. um, about me uh, um, or on Twitter or any kind of social media platform. Um, there will be some things about me that you just um, are for my family and my friends, but other people to choose literally put everything about themselves yeah. on yeah. all social media networks. Uh, it's a kind of choice in a way um
2: well i like I like Twitter a little bit more because I think Twitter is very much a okay, everything you do is completely one hundred percent public that's the whole model right and this is a broadcasting it's not it's not a um honest. I think they describe themselves uh, certainly initially less as a social network and more as a we're a micro blogging platform so if you want to blog and say something to the whole world and have as many people as possible read it and see it, you put it here. Uh, and, and it can go, you know, and reach a lot of people. And so I, I like that transparency uh, that's sort of inherent in your thinking about Twitter as opposed to Facebook, which is kind of like, hey, we have tons of privacy settings. You can choose who sees your updates. Um, oh, yes, but also, you know, a clever uh, data broker who wants to target you with advertising and messaging uh, can also gain access to you, you know, and, and you may not be aware of that.
1: That's great. Um, We're going to wrap it up for the podcast part of the show. Rand's been very generous. He's going to stay on for a little while and continue the discussion, um, which you'll be able to see on the WP Tonic website with a full um, transcript of our interview from beginning to end. Um, Rand, if um, people want to find out more about you and what you're up to, how's the best way for them to achieve that?
2: Sure. So I've been uh, writing a little bit at sparktoro.com slash blog. Uh, and I'm very active on Twitter at randfish. Um, and certainly if you have any you know, particular private questions for me, you can email me rand at sparktoro.com.
1: That's great. Thank you. And John, if people want to find out more about what you're up to, what's the best way to achieve that, John? You can go to
0: my website, which is Lockdown Design, or search for Lockdown Design on uh, YouTube. How do the people
1: get a hold of you, Jonathan? Oh, before that, I want to say, John's been publishing all sorts of SEO stuff. you become a bit of a monster with your publishing schedule, are not you, John? I've um, got
0: monster. Yeah, you're
1: right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> how to get hold of me is quite easy. Um, I'm like Rand. I'm blessed with unusual name. So if you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Dinwood. go to the WP Tonic website. We've got a load of articles about membership. LMSS search you name it and um, you can find us on our Facebook page we're going to wrap it up now folks like I say we're going to continue the discussion uh, for a while Um, and next week we'll have somebody doing something interesting with WordPress or the internet in general we'll see you next week folks
0: thanks for listening to WP Tonic the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week